Coming up on Tech Nation, 2006 Nobel Peace Prize winner Dr. Muhammad Yunus, the founder of Grameen Bank and Microloans to the Poor. He sees a world of three zeros, zero poverty, unemployment, and net carbon emissions. Then on Tech Nation Health, brain cancer in children, both treatment today and ongoing research. Dr. Rob Wexler-Rea joins us. He heads the Tumor Initiation and Maintenance Program at Sanford Burnham Prebis Medical Discovery Institute. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. There I was watching an episode of House of Cards. President Francis Underwood was working on his inaugural speech, and there on the coffee table in front of him, amid an artful spread of working papers, was an old-fashioned manual typewriter, just like my mother used to have. And, of course, my mother had an Underwood. This fact couldn't have escaped the writers, for what a joke. An Underwood for an Underwood, if it was an Underwood. Nevertheless, it had all the memorable qualities. As in, these jokers were boat anchors. They weighed a ton, figuratively speaking, and the effort to type each key. A half-hearted attempt, and your key didn't strike. But the carriage holding your single sheet of paper moved one character to the left anyway, and you had to hit backspace. There's a certain definitiveness watching each long, thin metal arm with the typeface of a single character rise up and hit the paper. But type too fast, and these arms will jam together. You need a rhythm, like playing a real piano as opposed to an electronic keyboard. Underwood's typewriter was a prop, present in earlier plot twists, and no doubt destined for others. But what I didn't know was that I would soon be accosted by manual typewriter fever. I saw one in an internet ad, and another in the photo of a famous writer who surely didn't type each book's 90,000 words on that beast, given multiple rewrites and passages ultimately abandoned, longhand begins to look good. Either that or plan on consuming 10,000 calories a day to keep up your strength. Still, it's bigger than that. Manual typewriter festivals and more. I entered manual typewriters on my search page, and the first entry astonished me. It turns out that besides Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote another Tony Award-winning musical, and the headline of a review had spelled Lin-Manuel as Lin-Manuel. I read the entire review before I gave up on the hope that there were pithy raps about manual typewriters and bounced to the next choice. And there it was, 
Gold, a documentary about a shop in Berkeley called California Typewriter and its struggle to keep going for 34 long years. Of course, they just love typewriters, as does Tom Hanks, who owns 250 of them, which I personally find inexplicable. There were songwriters like John Mayer and even playwright Sam Shepard, who contributed, when you ride a horse, you have to saddle it. When you use a typewriter, you have to feed it paper. Appreciation was also voiced for the fact that the typewriter doesn't give a hoot about your misspelled words. There have been a lot of tech improvements since the 1875 Stoles and Glidden through to the 1980s Smith Corona and the IBM Selectric with its replaceable font ball. Erasable paper, lighter tapping on the keys, and even an erase button, which remembered what characters you typed, moved the carriage back a letter where a second typewriter ribbon, this one white, struck the key again and removed the letter you just typed. The solution to more than one crime story rested in reading the erase tape backwards. But back to Underwood's Underwood. It had none of these features. Definitely pre-World War II, when typewriter manufacturers stopped making them and turned their metal technology skills to the war effort. But let's pay attention. A lot of folks really like these typewriters, which says something about being human. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, the 2006 Nobel Peace Prize winner, Dr. Muhammad Yunus, best known as the founder of Grameen Bank and the so-called father of microfinance, microloans to the impoverished, enabling a better quality of life for the entire family. Then on Tech Nation Health, we look at the treatment and effects of brain cancer in children. I'll speak with Dr. Rob Wexler-Rea, the director of the Tumor Initiation and Maintenance Program at Sanford Burnham Prebis Medical Discovery Institute. The Grameen Bank now operates in all of the 80,000 villages in Bangladesh. I asked Dr. Mohammed Yunus, the author of A World of Three Zeros, remind us about the origins of Grameen Bank. started to stop the victimization of people by the loan sharks. So I thought uh, one way I can do it by lending money myself. So I said, why don't I go ahead and lend money rather than uh, do study on them, write a book on them, uh, just go ahead and do it. And it picked up very well. It, everybody liked it. Everybody started borrowing money from me. I was very happy that people are responding to it. And uh, I see it's getting bigger and bigger. And I thought, why don't I make a bank out of it? And I created the bank. It's not easy. It's a lot of difficulties uh, to create a bank. Then it started in 1976. In, in 1983, we became a formal bank. 
and I was so happy. Now I can do it as big as I want to be. Uh, expand my program. It, it starts working very well. So today, Brahmin Bank in Bangladesh has over 9 million borrowers. 97% of them are women. And they own the bank. They sit in the board because they are, it's their bank. They make decisions. They make policies. Bank lends out on an average of $2.5 billion a year recently, but that money keeps growing every year. And the repayment has has remained over all these 41 years, near 100%, 99%, 98%, nothing below that. Uh, we feel happy that uh, it's, and we don't depend on money coming from outside because money is generated inside the bank by taking deposits. We take public deposit and lend money to poor people. And then the borrower themselves have their savings account. They put money in their savings. Recently, a very interesting thing happened. They have more money in their savings account than the loan that we have given out. So I tell the bank officials, look, you probably can't tell them that they are borrowers because in reality, bank is the borrower. They are the lender because they gave you more money than you gave them. Uh, so that's the kind of coming way when you give $2.5 billion a year and the borrowers have their in deposit more than half $2.5 billion uh, in their personal money. That is a long distance they have covered since it began. How tiny is the tiny amount? Uh, something like $30, $40. That's, that's but the beginning. all the difference in the world. All the difference in the world, yeah. Then we brought that idea to the United States, created Grameen Bank, Grameen America. This 2008, first started in Jackson Heights in New York and beautifully working. Then we got the uh, confidence that we can roll it out for more branches. New York has now seven branches, and in 11 cities, there are 20 branches right now, reaching out to 100,000 borrowers, all women, every one of them are women. And we have given out to come in America nearly a billion dollars in loans, and repayment is over 99%, 99.5%, 99.6%, and so on. So it's a, another amazing experience. It's not just one city. It's a multiple cities in multiple locations, many states around the country. Uh, Jackson Heights is one, and then uh, others, New York City, and then Omaha, Nebraska, Charlotte, North Carolina, Boston, Houston, uh, San Jose here, and uh, many other cities. How much do you loan typically here? in the United States? Uh, it is startup loan would be somewhere near $1,000, slightly more or slightly less. But over time, you keep on increasing your loan size as you pay back the first loan. You get the second loan higher than what you did. Every every time, you get a higher amount. And today, uh, for the whole of Grameen America, average loan would be something about $2,500. Now, they've heard you twice now say only to women or 97% to women. You started out lending to men. Uh, started out that way, but we made a uh, decision right from the beginning. Half the borrowers must be women. But the, well, men were coming and take money, standing in line to do that, but women stayed away from it. So it took us a long time to build confidence in them that, yes, you can take it. They are so scared to handle money and create a relationship with an institution we have no, they have no knowledge about. So they said they'll be in real trouble, and some people really scared them off. They said, you know what? They will put you in jail. They will burn your house if you don't pay the money back and so on. So they are really scared. We assured them, look, that's not what we do. We want to help you. 
So we have to explain to them again and again. Finally, build confidence. It took us six years to come to that 50-50 level. When we saw that uh, uh, after you reach it 50-50, we saw the money going to the family through women brought so much more benefit to the family than the same amount of money going to the family through men. Seeing it many, many times, we said, forget about 50-50. Just focus on women because same money can do so much more if you enter the family through women. Then we've started focusing. That's how it became 97% women. Now, you don't just lend to a woman. You lend to a group of women. We and we required them that if you want to take money from Grameen Bank, you have to find four other friends, form a group of five. Once you've succeeded in doing this, it's not an easy task to find four others about your condition, your, your situation. And then what you see, uh, you explain to you what it is. And then if you know our rules and procedures, then we start lending money to you individually. It's not a collective loan. It's your loan and her loan and her loan. But you've got but support there. Yes, you want to. Your friends should supporting each other so that you do the right thing. You don't do kind of bizarre thing that you took the money and then had a big feast and we used it up, uh, didn't have anything left for business. So make sure that everybody is responsible. Keep watch. Keep watch on each other. Make sure your group comes out outstanding group doing very good work. And famously, they must agree to the 16 decisions, decisions yes, which include educating children and growing vegetables year-round yes. and planting as many seedlings, selling the surface, renouncing paying or receiving dowries, child marriage, building pit latrines, drinking only from tube wells, and if not available, boiling the, boiling water. the water. What are the decisions in the United States? Uh, they are in the process to develop it because it has to come from the women themselves. Uh, there are certain, they, I know that they're working with five decisions in New York to see how they practical this is. Uh, once they sort it out, because it takes a process to make sure it's comfortable with them and really want that. And then we'll describe it, uh, we'll take it to more women around the country. And so you commit to these, and that's part of what changes the whole socioeconomic That's right. environment. Absolutely. They have done brilliant work by taking money, paying back. First of all, build confidence that, yes, it can be done. It can be done under all circumstances in Bangladesh and United States. doesn't matter, and anybody in between can be done. And second, that uh, even the poorest person, even the poor women in the villages, in the inner cities, undocumented women people, can become entrepreneurs and take care of herself and her family. Now, when you were here last, we talked about poverty and eradicating poverty with this economic approach and, and the idea of a social business. Now, today we're talking about three interrelated goals, zero poverty, zero unemployment, which on, on the face of it goes hand in hand, yes. you know, um, and zero carbon emissions. Why did you add zero carbon emissions and how are they interconnected with the first two? They're all interconnected because uh, everything is happening, all those uh, zeros that we are aiming at. In the first place, it was caused by the system that we built. So I've been talking about it many, many years, saying that poverty is not caused by the poor people. It's caused by the system that we built. Poor people are like bonsai people. You take the seed of the tallest tree in the forest and put it in a flower pot. It grows only two feet or three feet, and that's about it. It doesn't grow further. It's a beautiful replica of the tree, but it doesn't grow. 
and you wonder what's wrong with this tree. Did we do something wrong? No, you didn't do anything wrong except you got the best seed but put it in a flower pot. You didn't give the base on which to grow. That's why it couldn't grow. I said poor people are bonsai people. There's nothing wrong with their seed. They're as good human beings as anybody else. Simply society never gave them the base on which to be as tall as everybody else. So that's what I'm blaming and pinpointing that the system is wrong. And if you fix the system, all these three can be self-fixed because it's coming from them. One, I mentioned what, what went wrong with the system. Capitalist system starts with a flawed assumption. As they interpret human beings in a flawed way. They assumed human beings are all self-interest-driven, selfishness-driven. So all you do in your life, you want to do things for yourself. Uh, so business is all for yourself. That's where you make money, you become rich, you become more profitable, more money to come. So I said human beings, the real human beings are nowhere near that. Real human beings is a combination of selfishness and selflessness. But selflessness always can be ex escaped from the capitalist eyes. So they took it away and put only selfishness. I said, as a result, the whole capitalist system has become a lopsided system. It is almost standing on one foot because other foot is not there. So what I'm trying to do, put the other foot into it so that they become balanced. Selflessness can become a driving force also for doing things for themselves uh, so that you can take care of the world, take care of the family, take care of the other people's families. Uh, that's what we call social business. We define social business by saying it's a non-dividend company to solve human problems. Suddenly, you come out of the profit-making uh, track to a track where your only objective is to solve problems. As if you, you had the glasses on with the dollar signs and you only see <laughs> everything in a dollar signs way. And your mind is always focused on that. I said, you can take off your dollar sign glasses, put in a social business glasses. All of a sudden, you see, you have tremendous capacity to solve problems in a sustainable business way. So that's what we are saying. Once you bring that up, you address the issue of poverty, you address the pro pro problem of unemployment and even net zero, zero net carbon emission. But the moment you take off the glasses and put on the social business glasses, suddenly you see all these opportunities because you can do it in a way you sustain yourself, but you don't, you're not interested in making money for yourself. So that's the direction we're saying. Why don't you put on that social business glasses and address this issue? These are doable things. And human being has lots of creative power. Simply that creative power never came into this direction. The moment it comes into this direction, all the problem can be addressed. People get excited when you see your creative power can help people change their life. And that's the attraction that we're making. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dr. Muhammad Yunus. You know him best as the founder of Grameen Bank and the so-called father of microfinance, microloans to the impoverished, enabling a better quality of life for the entire family. He and the members of the Grameen Bank were awarded the 2006 Nobel Peace Prize. He's here today with a world of three zeros, the new economics of zero poverty, zero unemployment, and zero net carbon emissions. Now, you blew me away with the fact that the eight richest people in the world are wealthier than the collective bottom half of humanity, four billion people. And in the great tradition of no asking, no getting, you talk about the giving pledge. Describe that. Yes, um, this is amazing that uh, wealth 
keeps on concentrating in fewer and fewer hands. And this uh, information that I caught, uh, Oxfam information, that only eight people in the whole world own more wealth than the bottom 50%. If you assume that there are about 8 billion people nearly, so you, you have 4 billion people's wealth together equals to 1%'s wealth. That's eight percent wealth. That's what you're saying. So that's not the kind of economy that we are looking for. And this concentration process is going on for many, many years, ever since we have introduced social, uh, the capitalist system. But it was a slow motion. People didn't see it as much clearly as it is because the speed is not that much. Now speed becomes very high speed of concentration because the more you become concentrated, the next round becomes double it and triple it and so on and so forth. This is the way it's going on. Uh, so today I said eight people own. Tomorrow probably four people own the same amount of. Or next you see one person owning more wealth than 75% of the population of the world. This is the direction we are moving. I said, this is an explosive situation. This is a ticking time bomb. It will, it will destroy all our societies, destroy our politics, destroy everything. Anger in the bottom will become so strong that we cannot sustain anything. Before it happens, we have to diffuse this ticking time bomb. How we do it? We address all these issues by looking at the way where we went wrong, like interpretation of human being. If you create more and more social businesses, addressing the problems of the world, and then these social businesses will not lead to any concentration because we, up front we say we are not going to take any money for ourselves. So this is one. On the other side, while well, these people are making so much money, uh, you have no use for it. The only thing you can do, pass it on to your next generation, makes it worse. Luckily, what they are doing, they're, most of them, 168 of them, now signed what is known as giving pledge, meaning that you, after your death, half of the wealth that you leave behind will be going into foundation and charity organization. Many have 75% of the wealth will go into charity organization and so on, which is a good thing because you are, you are reducing that uh, burden of concentration. But the new generation is making this concentration all over again, despite the fact you do that. But it still it didn't help much except it is going into charity and helping other people, which is a wonderful thing to do. But you have not fixed the system. So this is what I'm addressing, that we must fix the system, and there are ways how we can do it. We can do it ourselves. It doesn't need permission from the economists. Yes, this is a good idea. If you feel like it, you can do it. You can create a social business because you like that social business, not because government has asked you to do that, not because government gives you tax benefit for that. You don't expect that. You say, I like it because I want to take four unemployed young people out of unemployment by creating a business just for them to work in there and making sure that they have earned enough to recycle this money and all the profit goes back to it and I get my money back over time and then this business keeps on increasing, expanding. Then I can create a job for another person, five people. So this is the way I want to do it. Anybody can do that. Uh, this is not a rocket science. It's simply willingness that, yes, I can do business not to make money but to solve problems. Now, you were talking about the young people, and again, I was blown away. In the next decade, 400 million young people need to join the workforce, and we need jobs for them. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, when they say that, that they, some uh, millions of young people are joining the workforce, and where is the job coming? This is a big issue. 
you have to continuously create that kind of job to accommodate all these young people coming in. At the same time, technology is doing something else. They are coming out with artificial intelligence. They are coming with robotics. Not only they are not creating new jobs, they are taking away the job of the existing people. They said, we don't need you. You go back. So they... 25% of the jobs will be gone very soon. 50% of the jobs will be going very soon. Where do we go? So this, I said, job is a wrong idea to begin with. Now it has created another crisis. So I said, real human beings are entrepreneurs. When they say that X million people, are, young people are coming to the job market, I read it completely differently. I said, I feel excited that X million young people are coming to the, uh, as entrepreneurs and change the whole world by contributing their entrepreneurial activities and enhancing the quality of the marketplace and coming with ideas to help it. And many of them will be social business entrepreneurs so that they can solve, start solving problems for the people and so on. So I see it completely differently than the conventional way of looking at it. And instead of getting scared, I get very excited. And when, uh, when they say artificial intelligence doing that, I will create another artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence for these people to make it easy for them to become entrepreneurs, run the program. And artificial intelligence solve the problem of healthcare. Because if you bring healthcare and artificial intelligence together, I can bring healthcare to everybody everywhere without any difficulty because everybody has a cell phone. I can use the cell phone to reach out to the people and run by artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is smarter than anybody else. They know exactly what your disease is and they will figure out at the beginning of the disease, not at the crucial period when it becomes too complicated. At the beginning, the artificial intelligence will be working on the prevention not the cure, because if you do the prevention part, you don't have to go up to the cure. So I'll turn everything around, design it in that way. And it's not just young people. The baby boomers, for instance, in this country, right. they're living much longer than they were told they were going to live. Right. <laughs> that yes, means indeed. they have yeah. to support themselves, yeah. and they're living better. The quality of life can be better. Sure. They need jobs. Absolutely. The, uh, I'll, I'm twisting a little bit. I said they don't need job. They need entrepreneurship and financing system to help them become entrepreneur. And I said longer duration, uh, the longevity that has. Also, it's uh, another uh, exciting thing. Uh, there's no question of retirement. Um, we retire that word, you, you said. Know, I said retire the word retirement. It doesn't apply to human being. Human being never stop working, never stop thinking, never stop creating. So don't give the impression at a certain age, suddenly you're nobody. You're not, use, not useful to anybody. It's tremendously useful. I call that part when you don't have the official employment or assignment with anybody. You are the, this is the freedom part of your life. Now you are free to do anything you like because retirement comes when you're working for somebody. That at a certain age, they let you go because they, they are not useful to them, but useful to the whole world. Now, things that you could not do before, now you can do it because when you're working for somebody, they let you work on only for them because they pay your salary. There's no time allowed to do something else. Now you're absolutely free. You're not under obligation to anybody. You're not oblig under obligation to your family because you have raised your ch children. They went to school. They got their professions, whatever they want. Now, every from all sides, you're free. So this enjoy your freedom path and do things that you always wanted to do. Change the world. Make things happening as a social business. You come up with ideas and do things that you never did before. You talk a lot about governance, society's governance, government. 
how do we need government to think of itself? Yeah, first of all, uh, the distance between the citizens and the government, that has to go. Because suddenly you're in the government, you're a different entity. I'm at the mercy of you. I'm always pleading with you, do this, do this. Why should I? I'm speaking with Dr. Mohammed Yunus, the author of A World of Three Zeros, The New Economics of Zero Poverty, Zero Unemployment, and Zero Net Carbon Emissions. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of TechNation, BioTechNation, and TechNation Health are available at iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on TechNation Health, research studying brain cancer in children. Dr. Rob Wexler-Rea from the Sanford Burnham Previs Medical Discovery Institute joins me. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Nobel Peace Prize winner and economist Dr. Muhammad Yunus, best known as the founder of Grameen Bank, providing microloans to the impoverished, enabling a better quality of life for the entire family. I said, We collectively created you, the government, to represent us, to work on our behalf. So, how to make sure you really reflect us in every decision? Now, in most of the countries, government become an authority that others have to follow because I have the authority. I make sure you do this, do this. Even if you don't like it, you have to do that. And they come to a re-election at a certain number of years if it's a democracy, and everything is manipulated in the democracy. Uh, in some countries, it's a bl- absolutely in a blunt way. They uh, steal the votes. They manipulate everything. So that real election, you don't know what it is. Now we had a recent Kenyan election, and the president was elected, and everybody was celebrating. Now the opposition said, no, it was a fake election, it was a rigged election, and so nobody listened. They went to the court. Now the Supreme Court says it was a rigged election. 
So you have to hold another election. So this is the way, luckily, Supreme Court acted on this, but not all Supreme Courts are as powerful as this one. But they, uh, they go through this rigging in every way, in a very blatant way they do that, and also very subtle way they do that, manipulating the government machinery to do that, manipulating the media to do that, give fake information to you, and so on, and rob your votes by just stealing the boxes, stuffing the boxes, and so on. So I said... Unless we can have a nice election, proper election, the whole idea of good governance ends right there because you end up with a government which you had nothing to do with. They just manipulated themselves into power and they rule you. So you become uh, ruled by their government rather than government representing your desires and wishes to apply and make sure you happen. So the core thing is a good governance. Step by step, we have to follow that. Just because we vote doesn't mean that everything would be in our way. Uh, that vote can be manipulated very easily in many different ways. So how to do that, how to monitor it, how to make sure it becomes transparent. And once you get through it, then you have a cleaner government. And then the corruption comes in. Once you have power, very likely that you have get into corruption, massive corruption, not just a tiny little corruption. At each level, many governments, you have each level of governments is filled with corruption. So you can buy your decision. Uh, you want it this way, you just pour the money and you get it done. Uh, and people, agents are working around to tell you, oh, you want it done? I know how to do it. Give me this money. I'll pass it on and make sure. On the surface, you would say it cannot be done. But when you pour, pour in the money, everything can be done. So that takes away the whole basis of, uh, of, of good governance. The corruption is the killer of the good governance. Well, it's okay if you don't want to talk about this, but starting in 2010, uh, political persons and political forces in Bangladesh accuse you, the management of Green Bean Bank, the very principle of microfinance, and anything they could think of, of bad acts, the worst intentions, um, spreading, and they spread on truths in the media, uh, the whole nine yards. And I'm not going to give them mm -hmm. any recognition for what they did. But I do recognize that good people who are trying to make good things happen, especially who are, who are actually creating action, well, others come after them. They come after them to try to stop them. It's almost a sign of success, an indicator. My question to you is, what does it feel like when you are the target? If we had good governance, this would not have happened. Because we didn't have that at each step, we absolutely done the wrong things. And we ended up with the things that uh, happened to me. So I would encourage everybody to put to pay a lot of attention in the election process, in the process of how the governance is done, about the corruption, about many other things which relate to the governance issue. So because that will ensure your safety. Otherwise, you are open to anything. Judiciary is gone. Public service is gone. Uh, police service is gone, everything is gone. So you are in a world of un absolutely uh, uncertain uh, future for yourself. You don't know. Anybody can accuse you of anything, get you, uh, go through the judiciary, which is totally manipulated by somebody else, and you get nothing. And you wonder, what, what, where do we go from What now? happened? What happened? <laughs> what do you do from now? Yeah. And what do you do? I keep working, continue to do that because uh, if I get drawn into all this, this is a never-ending process it's a, you can never, because I cannot solve this. I have no place to seek justice from it. So I just continue 
and it's very uncertain because they can come back with the more uh, thing and they can put me uh, any punishment they want because everything is controlled by them. So you just have to keep on your right path. That's right. I continue to do what I do, need to do. Okay, so let's say we do what you talk about in the book, what you've envisioned here. How do we know when we've reached success? Uh, if you're solving the problem, if, you're, if, you, if young people uh, are listening to this, or they feel it, uh, yes, this is what I want to do. Today, the young people are told at home, to, as they grow up with the parents, uh, when they go to school, uh, work hard, get good grades, go to the best college so that you get the best job. As if life ends with the best job. That's the destiny of every human being. I said, it's a shame that such a huge human being is asked to end this life at the, at the peak of his creative uh, power to start the life working for somebody else. And after that, the whole life is spent in that. And then comes the retirement, your life is over. I said that you have sacrificed everything, all your creativity, all your things, the designs of life and uh, the world has no meaning anymore because you have to fit into the slot designed by the business or the company or whatever office that you join, and that's the rest of your life. I said that kind of thing is very harmful for the society that you would sacrifice all the creative creativity of the young people. So I'm saying that in the, in the school, in the home, you'll be telling the young people that you have two choices. You can work for somebody as you grow up. This is the route. This is what you have to do to have a good life with the employment. Or you can be an entrepreneur. You can design yourself any way you want. And this is the, these are the steps you do. Today we don't know that. We have only one scope. So I said give young people choices. This is very important. Then let them figure out. And you provide all the options, elaboration of the options. If you do this, these are the risks. These are the uh, outcome. These are the excitement. If you do this, this is the option. This is what you, you can do. You sacrifice this, you get this. And so on. So that they have to choose now. What, who am I? What is the purpose of my life in this planet? I will be here for a very short period. And during this period, what is it I want to accomplish? This should be an integral part of education. Today, we don't do that. We're teaching them math, teaching them chemistry, physics, geography, history, everything. But never teach them who you are. What is it, the purpose for you? What is the role that you want to play in this world? Once I know who I am, what is my purpose, then everything else becomes relevant. Otherwise, they're irre irrelevant things. Everybody says, oh, you have to have, get knowledge, get more knowledge. My question is, knowledge for what? There should be a purpose <laughs> behind it. Otherwise, knowledge by itself doesn't mean anything. It's all stacked up. Today, even not in a box. You go to Google, you go to these search engines, you get anything you want, any information you want, any knowledge you want. What does it mean? Is that doesn't dictate me. Only thing I need this so that I can do what I want to do as a human being on this planet. I have unlimited capacity, unlimited power to do that. I want to maximize that. I want to make as best use of that as I can so that when I finish my life, I know I've done my best. And as you've said for many, many, many years, well, I'll have to go to a museum to see what poverty was Absolutely, like. Absolutely, yes. This is what I've been saying again and again. Poverty doesn't belong to civilized human society.
Well, Dr. Eunice, you're always welcome on Tech Nation. You, you come back. See Thank us anytime. You. Delighted to be here. My guest today is Dr. Muhammad Yunus. His book is A World of Three Zeros, The New Economics of Zero Poverty, Zero Unemployment, and Zero Net Carbon Emissions. It's published by Public Affairs, an imprint of Perseus. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. Today on Tech Nation Health, brain cancer in children. Dr. Rob Wexler Rea is a professor and the director of the Tumor Initiation and Maintenance Program at Sanford Burnham Previs Medical Discovery Institute. In the last few years, brain tumors have become the most prevalent cause of cancer-related death in kids. And that's in part because we've gotten better at treating leukemias. And these are devastating diseases, as you can imagine. Um, A parent whose child is diagnosed with this is suddenly put into a tailspin, trying to figure out what are the best treatments, how do we manage this, you know, what are the right ways to approach treating this disease. And typically, a child who's diagnosed with a brain tumor undergoes surgery right away to take out the tumor, followed by craniospinal radiation. That means radiation from the top of the head to the base of the spine. And the reason for that is because if you just irradiate the tumor in the brain, the tumor cells often spread down the spinal cord. And so you have to irradiate the entire nervous system in order to really get rid of the tumor. Um, And then once they're done with their radiotherapy, they will get chemotherapy, and it's usually a cocktail of three or four really potent chemotherapy agents that are supposed to mop up any remaining cancer cells. Now, depending on the disease, in some cases this will cure the kid or at least prolong their survival by several years. Um, In other cases, even with those aggressive therapies, um, the patient will die of the disease. And so There are certain kinds of brain tumors that are nearly 100% lethal and others that are um, amenable to therapy um, and for which the the therapies are clearly doing something, but in many cases just prolonging survival and then the tumor will come back even more aggressive and kill the child. There there must be severe side effects. There are. And so the, the challenge with pediatric brain tumors is... Of course, first and foremost, to cure the child. But those children who do survive the therapy end up often with very severe long-term side effects. Um, They have cognitive deficits. You've irradiated their developing brain, and you've damaged the stem cells that are going to give rise to the nervous system that are going to make the connections with each other. And so often kids who have survived brain tumor therapy will end up with 10 to 20 point drops in IQ over the next 10 years. Now, the way IQ is defined, 100 is average, 75 is mentally retarded. So these kids can go from being an average normal kid to really not being able to cope with the world efficiently or effectively. And so a lot of kids who survive brain tumor therapy 
are not able to go to college, not able to hold down a job, not able to leave their parents' house. And those are the cognitive deficits. There are also endocrine disorders and severe uh, and increased susceptibility to other cancers later in life. And so a child will be cured of one tumor, but then they'll develop another tumor because you've irradiated their cells and caused mutations that then turn those cells into another cancer. Does it matter where in the brain the tumor is? It matters in a number of ways. So um, there are several different kinds of uh, brain tumors that kids develop. One of the most severe is called brainstem glioma or diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma. And this is one of those tumors where survival is nearly zero. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One, it's a very aggressive tumor. But two, because it occurs in the brainstem, it's usually impossible to surgically remove it. And if you cannot surgically remove the tumor, then the radiation and the chemotherapy are usually not sufficient. So one of the consequences of location is how susceptible it is to, ther- to surgery. Tumors that occur elsewhere in the brain can be surgically removed, and that gives kids much better odds at, at long-term survival. But of course, we only can remove what we can remove. There's other cancers live cancer cells in and around. That's right. And so the cancer cells go from the original site where they developed and spread forward into the front part of the brain and they spread backward down the spinal cord. And so even if we're able to surgically remove the bulk of the tumor, we still have a lot of work to do to kill the remaining tumor cells. Now, what are you working on? So my lab focuses on a brain tumor called medulloblastoma. And this is the most common malignant brain tumor in kids. It's an extremely aggressive tumor that, if, is, if it's untreated, will invariably spread throughout the nervous system and kill the child. Now, the good thing is, nowadays, in modern centers, we don't leave kids untreated. In fact, we treat them very aggressively. And so with that combination of surgery and radiation and chemotherapy, a child with medulloblastoma has about a 75% chance of surviving for five years or more. Now, the five-year survival is a benchmark that adult oncologists use because typically in an adult, if you get a patient to survive for five years, that means the cancer is probably gone. In a kid, that's not the case. And saying that we've prolonged survival by five years, certainly better than nothing. But often kids with medulloblastoma will relapse between five and 10 years or even 12 or 15 years after the original tumor. And so one problem is... kids are growing, 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 growing. They're growing, and and we're not able to track all of the tumor cells that may have become indolent and then take off again when we stop treating them. And so we need to get better at um, treating those kids, and we need to get better at treating them in a way that's going to cure their tumor without causing long-term devastating side effects. And so in my lab... We work on animal models of medulloblastoma, and we develop a couple of different kinds of models, what are called genetically engineered mouse models, where we take some of the genes that we know are altered in the human tumors, and we alter them in the mouse, and that gives rise to a mouse brain tumor that we can then study. We can study how that tumor originates. We can study the steps in tumor development, and we can use that model to then test therapies. The second kind of model that's extremely powerful is what's called a patient-derived xenograft. And this is something that we've been able to do because we have a close collaboration with the clinicians at the Children's Hospital. So when a child undergoes surgery, 
we usually get an email or a text and they say, we're going to do a surgery now. And I'll send somebody from my lab down to collect a little bit of that tumor tissue, bring it back to the lab, and inject it into the brain of a mouse. And then we'll passage that tumor in the mouse. So it's essentially like a little avatar, a little piece of the patient's tumor that we're able to expand and study in the lab. And so we've generated more than 20 of these over the last few years. And the amazing thing is these really recapitulate the key features of the patient's tumors and the diversity of these tumors. And so even though medulloblastoma is referred to with this one label, it's really many different diseases caused by many different kinds of mutations. And to have the opportunity to study that diversity in the lab is really amazing. And so we use these models to study what are the genes that are important, what are the drugs that we might use to target those genes, and then we use them as platforms to test therapy. So we'll take a drug that we think might work, and we'll test it on a bunch of our animal models and see whether we're able to cure the disease. The idea is that if we do preclinical studies like this, if we test therapies in our models before we go into a clinical trial, the odds of success of that clinical trial are much greater. Right now, and this is not just in pediatrics, about 5% of clinical trials for cancer drugs end up resulting in approved drugs. That means 95% of clinical trials fail. And there are many reasons for that. But one big reason is because a lot of the trials are not backed up by strong data from the lab in which you say, this kind of tumor is going to respond to this kind of therapy. And so that's our goal, is really to try to identify the appropriate therapies for the different kinds of childhood brain tumors and even the different kinds of medulloblastoma. So the unfortunate situation of a, of a child having a brain tumor, you're actually able to take, in a sense, their precise tumor and, and make it a case at, that you can continue to work with and perpetuate. That's very unusual. It is, but it's extremely powerful, and we've worked really hard to set up the system. And as I said, we generated more than 20 of these, and we've shared them with about 30 or 40 labs around the world because not every lab can do this. Not every lab has access to it. And so we're able to share these models with other labs so that collectively we can all study this disease and come up with better approaches to therapy. This is a completely hypothetical question, but... I'm so struck by the consequences of the radiation. Mm -hmm. That is just so severe. Mm -hmm. Do some parents and, and, and kids choose not to have the radiation portion? Um, well, typically not, although there are cases where radiation is not recommended. So in young children, they tend to try to avoid it. If, if a child is under three years old, they'll usually try to give them other therapies until they get to an older age because it's been observed that if you irradiate a really young child, this cognitive decline is, is much more severe. Um, so there is certainly a goal in the field to try to reduce radiation, but nobody wants to take the chance that we're going to not be able to cure the tumor. I should also say that the side effects of the chemotherapy are really devastating as well. And I met a, a mom recently who actually we corresponded by email uh, starting last July, and this is a woman whose child was diagnosed with medulloblastoma and um, received initial therapy and responded to it and then relapsed. 
And she wrote to me, she'd read about my work, and she wrote to me and asked, you know, is there anything new on the horizon? Can you explain to me what my child has? And we struck up an email conversation. And um, her child was receiving therapy for the relapsed tumor, um, very, very potent chemotherapy drugs. In fact, potent enough that the way they do this is they um, take some of the child's bone marrow before they give the chemotherapy because they give so such intensive chemotherapy that it basically wipes out the child's blood-forming system. And so they give that intense chemotherapy, and then they give them back their bone marrow as a way of rescuing them. Anyway, her child went through this intensive therapy and seemed to be responding. Um, but somewhere around Christmas, so this is six months after he started the, the therapy for the relapsed tumor, um, he started to have just very, very severe side effects from the therapy and ended up dying from those. Um, she wrote to me. I got an email with the subject line, terrible news. And he had basically, even though the therapy was um, eliminating the tumor, it was destroying her child. And he died of the disease. And she still, I had the opportunity to meet her in New York last week. And she's still devastated because, I mean, She's lost a child, and seemingly because of what they were doing to try to cure him. The treatment. Yeah. So it was sort of a cautionary tale to me that, you know, we, of course, we need to be as aggressive as possible. But at the same time, we need to be cognizant that these are human beings, and they're fragile. It takes a long time to get all the pieces together to understand, to make it happen. And yet I sense your urgency. Yeah, this is something that, um, you know, I went into science because I thought it was really cool. Um, solving puzzles, figuring out how things work, that was really cool. And I happened to land in a lab. Actually, I, I went to do my postdoc at Stanford in a lab that um, was going to leave. And so I had to switch to another lab. And I landed in a lab where they were um, studying development in flies, fruit flies, and had uh, come upon a gene that was important in fruit fly development that had a homologue in mice and in people. And so they decided to make a knockout mouse, a mouse that had a mutation in this gene. And that mouse developed a brain tumor. And um, so suddenly they became interested in this gene and in the causes of brain tumors. And that's around the time I came to the lab. And so initially, again, this was just one more really cool puzzle that I got to solve. Why why was a mutation in this gene that seemed to have nothing to do with cancer causing cancer? What happened was, of course, you know, the puzzle was fun. The pursuit of this was really fun. But I got to meet at one point a physician who treats these kids and a child with medulloblastoma. Um, it was a, a session that my advisor could not attend, and he asked me to go and participate. And it was a an evening session for medical students where the physician would give a talk about a disease. They would bring in a patient with that disease, and then they'd bring a researcher who works on that disease. And so I got to sit in on the session, hear him interview the patient and, and the patient's mom, um, and give my talk. And then after that point in the session, the mom and the child left, and the oncologist turned to the, the crowd of medical students and said, um, you know, I hope you enjoyed that. 
how many of you think that this child is cured? And he put up a, a picture of the child's MRI before the, the therapy. You could see this sort of big blob of a tumor. And then after the therapy, and it was all gone. And everybody said, you know, that looks amazing. And it turns out he had a type of medulloblastoma that they knew was going to come back. They knew that this was going to spread down the spinal cord and there would be no way to treat it. And so suddenly this kind of really fun, interesting puzzle became something that was going to affect the lives of kids. And over the years, I've gotten to meet a lot of kids and their parents who are fighting this disease. And it just transforms how you think about going to work in the morning, you know, getting a grant rejected, getting a paper rejected. You think, you know, sure, that happens. But we have to keep at it. We have to really keep fighting because we have to look these people in the face and say, we are doing everything we can to make this better. And you mean we, you and your brother is also, he is also a pediatric cancer researcher. He is. So um, so I'm the middle of three, three kids. Um, my older and younger brothers are both doctors. I'm a PhD. So I'm the black sheep. And um, <laughs> my older brother uh, is a pediatric oncologist. So he treats kids with um, cancer. And his focus is on leukemia. And he does research in the lab that focuses on leukemia as well. And I was trying to think back to when we realized that we were both doing the same kind of thing. Um, and, and it just sort of happened that way. It wasn't by design and it wasn't based on discussion. Um, but we're both really passionate about this and come at it actually from very different perspectives because, as you can imagine, a doctor who treats kids – sees every day the devastation and, you know, the imperfections in our therapy. Um, so he tends to be a lot more skeptical and I tend to be a lot more hopeful. And when I talk about the therapies that we're developing in the lab, he at some point will roll his eyes and say, do you know how many of those therapies actually work? And um, we were all together with my parents and my other brother last year and we got into this huge argument about the likelihood that what we do in the lab is going to make a difference in the clinic. But I strongly believe that it will and I strongly believe that by studying this disease, by figuring out what causes it, by testing therapies, that we're going to make strides in, in the clinic. And I think in his heart he believes it too, otherwise he wouldn't be doing this. <laughs> Dr. Rob Wexler-Rea is a professor and the director of the Tumor Initiation and Maintenance Program at Sanford Burnham Prebys Medical Discovery Institute. More information is available at sbpdiscovery.org. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.